Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. From the Financial Times, this is a World Weekly podcast. Gideon Rackman is away. I am Martin Sanbu. I write the FT's Free Lunch, our daily economics newsletter. Today, we're not talking about economics. We are talking about U.S. politics and, in particular, the importance of the passing last Saturday of Antonin Scalia, the Supreme Court Justice. To discuss his role on the Supreme Court and in U.S. society and politics, including the implication for the current election campaign, I have on the line two of our finest Washington correspondents, Barney Jobson and Jeff Dyer. Barney and Jeff, welcome. Good to be here. Good to talk to you, Martin. Jeff, let's start by just recalling how important Scalia has been on the Supreme Court and how the court has changed or affected or influenced the progress of social affairs in the U.S. He'd been on the court for 30 years. He was the longest serving justice and he was very much on the conservative side, wasn't he? He was. I mean, he was very much a towering figure in the last three decades of the Supreme Court. The court has very much moved towards the right during that time, it has become much more conservative. And Antonin Scalia was the intellectual driving force behind that move. And he specifically implemented a theory about the Constitution that some people call originalism, other people call textualism, and essentially means that what Supreme Court justices should do is stick very closely to what they think the original meaning of the words of the Constitution was. 30 years ago, when he started raising these ideas, that was a sort of a fringe legal theory. It wasn't really taken very seriously. I wouldn't say it's now the dominant legal theory, but it's very much considered a sort of serious contender amongst different theories of the Constitution. And it's had a huge impact on the way that the Supreme Court has behaved and the way that a whole generation of American legal scholars have thought about the Constitution. Why was he so influential in changing that approach to legal reasoning? Was it because he had a conservative political win in his sales or was it through sheer intellectual force? A bit of both. I mean, he came in during the Reagan administration when there was a lot of conservative energy in the country. But it was very much the force of his personality as well. He was a, a very pugnacious arguer. On the paper, he was a very elegant, often acerbic, but also a very strong arguer of his case. Uh, that made him have a, an influence, I think, beyond the sort of narrow confines of legal scholars. His opinions are viewed in law schools all across the country because they're so interesting to read. That gave him a much broader reach. But he was also, and that's really come out in, in the days since his death, one of the more interesting things about him was he was someone who, at a personal level, was able to reach across the aisle, as it were. He had strong friendships with Democratic senators, with some of the members of the Supreme Court, nominated by Democrats. So although he was quite a ideological person intellectually, he was much more Catholic in his personal tastes. Could you talk us through some of the signal cases? Because on the one hand, he influenced the jurisprudence towards the right. On the other hand, we've seen the Supreme Court do things like authorise gay marriage and so on. I mean, some very non-conservative decisions. I guess the one that really stands out in his record was the decision that essentially reinforced Second Amendment rights for all Americans until Scalia was on the court and this case was heard in the 90s. There was an argument as to whether Second Amendment rights to bear arms were for all citizens or just for state militias like uh, the National Guard. 
and he wrote the majority opinion in the case that decided that Second Amendment right covered all citizens, that everyone had the right to bear arms, which has a huge impact on the whole politics and culture of gun owning in the US. But as you mentioned, there were big defeats as well. I mean, the most remarkable one is the one you brought up, the gay marriage one, which he strongly argued against in very vociferous terms. He lost that case, and in a sense, that kind of represented everything that he had been arguing against in his sort of originalist legal philosophy. I mean, to him, that was a classic case of judges using their own social biases and political preferences and imposing them on the Constitution. But he lost that argument, and gay marriage is now the law of the land. Exactly. We shouldn't let go unmentioned his role as part of the majority on Bush v. Gore, the decision that handed the 2000 presidential election, the hanging Chad election to George W. Bush. Now, of course, we're in the middle of a Supreme Court term and there's an open docket of cases. Barney, can you tell us a little bit about what his death means in terms of the current term and what are the big decisions to come and whether that changes anything? Well, there are typically nine Supreme Court justices. Scalia's death means, of course, we're now left with eight. And what's interesting is that those eight justices are evenly divided between four who have conservative leanings and four who have liberal leanings. Now, when there are nine judges, we've seen a lot of cases decided on a very narrow five to four basis. With just eight justices left, there's a high chance that some of the remaining cases are going to be split four-four. What that means is that the Supreme Court effectively has not decided the case, and in that circumstance, the ruling of the lower court stands in place. So in some ways, it removes the Supreme Court's power to be the final adjudicator. Now, the cases where this is perhaps going to matter cover a variety of issues with big social and political implications. There are cases that affect abortion, cases that affect the funding of unions, cases that affect the drawing of electoral maps... The one which is perhaps most significant for President Obama is a case that concerns one of his attempted policy legacies on immigration. The US, as you know, has roughly 11 million unauthorised immigrants in the country. Their status has been the subject of fierce political debate for decades. President Obama was seeking to help some of those people, up to about 5 million by allowing them to stay in the US, giving them work permits, removing the threat of deportation. It was a very bold step the president took using his own executive powers. It was immediately challenged by Republicans. That case has now got to the Supreme Court. They're due to decide on it by the end of June. But with this potential 4-4 split, it may be that the court does not reach a clear decision. And if it doesn't, It means that the ruling of the lower court would stand. And in this case, the lower court struck down that move by the president. So if that happens, that would be very bad news for President Obama. A key piece of his legacy would disappear. Just briefly on the other cases, since it depends on where the lower court stood, is there a pattern there or is it all over the place? Some kind of in favour of the Democrats, some in favour of the Republican political positions? It's a mixture. The case about unions relates to whether unions can ask non-members to pay fees to contribute to collective bargaining. In that case, the lower court ruled in favour of the unions. So if that ruling stood, it would be good news for the Democrats. The Obama administration would be pleased. The abortion case is about a law in Texas, which made it far more difficult for Texan abortion clinics to remain in operation. Again, in that case, the lower court actually ruled in favour of the law. So if that ruling stood, it would be considered bad news for liberals and Democrats. 
And we know, of course, that there are many other significant cases in the pipeline on climate change and other things. But apart from policy, all of this matters perhaps most immediately to the politics, the politics of the election campaign. Jeff, whoever Obama nominates, there's no chance that the Republican-held Senate is going to uh, confirm his candidate, is there? Well, that is the conventional wisdom. The Republicans have 54 seats in the Senate. You would need just to get a majority support. You need to peel off at least four Republicans. And to prevent a filibuster, you need to peel off 14 Republicans. So the conventional wisdom is that whoever gets nominated will not go through. But the Democrats are going to work very hard on a number of Republican senators, particularly ones who are up for re-election this year and who are in states that Barack Obama carried. So there's a whole series of Republican senators who are potentially vulnerable in this election cycle, especially if there's a strong Democratic presidential candidate in places like New Hampshire and Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Illinois. And they will put pressure on those senators, try and flip them over, because they will argue that those senators don't want to be seen to be part of a Republican obstruction of the Supreme Court, keeping the Supreme Court empty for a whole year that will create precisely the kind of paralysis that Barney has just been describing. So there is a way in which the White House and the Senate Democrats can put a lot of pressure on Republicans in the Senate to at least peel over a number of them, but it's probably unlikely they'll get the number they would need to prevent a filibuster. So it seems like the central case is that whoever Obama nominates, that person will not be confirmed, but who he nominates could still be quite important electorally. Is that the right way to think about it? Yes, I think that's very much the case. If Obama puts forward someone who's a very strong liberal record, that will galvanize a lot of people on both sides. It will galvanize a lot of Democrats, but it also galvanize a lot of people on the Republican side. And they will say, we have to fight again. We have to win this election. We have to fight against the Democrats because Obama's trying to stack the court against us. If you put someone forward who's a bit more moderate credentials, a bit more towards the center, then that can put some of the Republicans in a very difficult position because they won't necessarily want to be seen to be opposing someone who comes across as a very consensus kind of choice. So one of the people who's being mentioned He's a D.C. appeals court judge called Sri Shunavasan, who's considered a moderate. He was a deputy solicitor general under George W. Bush. He was confirmed to that position in the D.C. court a couple of years ago by a majority vote in the Senate. Got glowing reviews from people like Senator Ted Cruz, the presidential candidate who's been saying that he will block anyone who Obama puts forward. So if he puts forward a judge like that, it puts a lot of Republicans in a very difficult position if they want to try and block that candidate. Barney, when you talk to voters, do you find that they are exercised about the Supreme Court issue, who will fill the vacancy and what happens in the Senate confirmation hearings. How much does it matter to the ordinary voter? The average voter is not in the weeds of the legal details here, but it does resonate, I think, with both party bases, the kind of the strong conservative and strong liberal voters who are much more engaged with politics and who do appreciate that when the ideological tilt of the court is up for grabs, it's something that can have implications for decades ahead. So it's certainly going to work, as Jeff suggested, to galvanise some of those core voters who are already committed to the cause. I think the way the Republicans are playing it is a bit of a gamble in some respects because they have been threatening, at least implicitly, to oppose whoever President Obama nominates. And they're obviously doing that in the hope that they will secure the White House keep hold of the Senate and be able to impose their own candidate next year. However, the party leaders who are making that threat are the same party leaders who've been expressing concern, privately at least, about the possibility of a Donald Trump nominee. And there are worries that if Trump is the nominee, that not only might he lose to the Democrats, 
he might also result in the Republicans losing control of the Senate. If that happened, and we had perhaps Hillary Clinton as the president, together with a Democratic Senate, the Republicans could see a Supreme Court justice who was far more liberal than anyone that President Obama might nominate. So in some ways, I think the party should be careful what it wishes for. And we should mention here that the next president could very well have one or two or three more seats to fill, given the age of the most senior or oldest justices on the court presently. For U.S. campaign managers, you always hear about how the electorate is sort of sliced into various demographics and identity politics end up playing a big role. Is that going to matter in the president's selection of a nominee? Will they look for a black candidate or a Hispanic candidate or some other type? Jeff? It could play part of a role. I, mean, I think that for the White House at the moment, the main consideration is trying to play this slightly political game of having a candidate that makes life hard for the Republicans. But also, I think Barack Obama would want to address some of those kind of concerns. I mean, if you think about the Bernie Sanders candidacy to be president, in a sense, it's a criticism of his presidency for not being liberal enough, for not being progressive enough. And so he might want to try and find some candidate for the Supreme Court that answers that question as well. So either a woman or someone of colour or someone from a background that helps energise, encourages liberals in his party as well. Because it's going to be a big part of his presidential legacy too, who he chooses to put up for the Supreme Court. My own preference has been for the sheer comedy value of it that President Obama nominates himself. Somebody wrote that actually Republicans in the Senate would have a good reason to vote for him because then he would leave the White House. Don't know if they would prefer Joe Biden for the remaining nine months. Anyway, that's definitely not going to happen. But what's going to happen, we don't know. So we'll just keep following this. Thanks very much to Jeff and to Barney for calling in. Exciting discussion, and I'm sure we'll return to this as we know more. Thanks to everyone for listening. and well- Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Come back next week.